0: Hello one and all and welcome to the podcast we call the Fantastival with myself Steve Nussbaum in the podcast where I invite my guests to come on and talk to me all about their musical tastes and experiences and they also get to play their fantasy festivals which I have christened Fantastivals. We are now on episode number 72, unbelievably 72 <laughs> episodes in, into November now. Crazy! And before we start this one, I must thank my guest for episode number 71. Singer-songwriter from Glasgow, Mr. Dell, was just an amazing guest to have on. He was so much fun, and I loved listening to new artists and hearing all about his work and his experiences and his great fancy festival lineup. So, a massive thank you to Dell. So let's move on in in this episode number 72, and I'm delighted with the guest this week, and I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast, and I've taken this from his Facebook page because there's a lot to say about him, musician, guitarist, writer, lecturer, promoter, occasional DJ, ladies and gentlemen, it can only be the one and only, it's Mr. Keith Mullin.
1: Hello, Stephen, how are you?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm all good, how are you, Keith? I'll
1: say hello to everyone listening.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Keith, uh, before we like to talk about music, I always like to check in with my guests. It's been a difficult year and a half i always like to see how they're doing so keith how are you mate how's it going
1: i'm all right you know i'm in a good place right now <clears throat> i mean um i've actually i've been obviously with me working in my work that i do at leper and um, the, the teaching i do there's been difficult from that perspective really because obviously um trying to make education work and teaching work and uh, uh, academia work really um during a pandemic has been extremely difficult but you know i've managed you know I, I spent the last two years as well fighting cancer throat cancer basically so I might have claim my throat a lot because I've had several operations of radial therapy and I'm currently uh, 18 months in remission so I'm, I'm in a good place really
0: brilliant stuff great to hear great to hear so obviously you're on this podcast <laughs> to talk all about music and I'm looking forward to you talking all about that so Keith how did you how did you get into music
1: um really it was um, Christ I mean Everyone in the, my family very musical orientated in the terms of like my dad was a massive, huge music fan. So was my mom. And um, there were various people in the family who played in various instruments and things. And they come from that kind of generation in a working class city of Liverpool, where it was common for them to have like a piano, was like a piece of furniture in the house, you know. And, and so my nan was a piano player, really. And, and, and so at all the house parties and stuff like that, you know, that she used to be playing the piano, you know, because she didn't have, necessarily have record players back then when, when I was a kid and remembered it. So, so the, the, the piano was a, a piece of furniture in the house that my nan used to kind of play when we'd go to parties and my nan's. And, and so music has always been kind of sort of central to entertainment, I suppose, with, with, within the household. And I, I got into uh, playing because um, my dad brought a banjo home one. Um, one day, one one weekend, you know, and um, just left it in the house and said, "That's yours," you know. So, I, I started really. My first instrument really was was playing around with banjo and and teaching myself to mess about on that. And I got quite good on it for a bit, but it, it, it really. I uh, when I got into my teens, really, it really wasn't um cool to be a banjo player, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> being from working class areas of Liverpool, but it was I and mean, uh, when I'm growing up for my teens, yeah, my teens, punk was happening, you know, and stuff like that. So I I, 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 sort of grew up through that, and then eventually picked up guitar. And my brother was playing guitar, my dad played guitar, my cousin played guitar. There, uh, I had an uncle who played piano, and and I, I sort of kind of just learned some, picked up things off them, and then taught myself from there. You know,
0: was it that? Like, was it natural? I, I
1: just picked things up by ear? Really? Yeah. You know, just, listening to records, listening to tunes and p- picking the needle up and putting it back again and <laughs> doing that type of thing in the record when you're trying to work out what was going on. And So I kind of developed and learned like that, really, and, and began by uh, playing guitar. I then went on to... Um, I remember um, during the early 80s when everyone was out of work and we were all unemployed and um, moving to various parts of the country uh, to try and find work and, and doing that. But I remember that I got... I'd applied to go to... Um, mabel fletcher's college of music and drama and didn't think i'd get in because it was kids like me didn't get in places like that but i i had my mum ran me up and said you've got a letter here for me in uh, the college and you, you've got a place you know so i was quite shocked so i remember hitchhiking home from um from devon because uh, i was working in torquay at the time and and uh in in uh, in, uh, in, uh, in well, looking for work <laughs> i not think it was i think it was just sat out there with, like, <laughs> to work. and um, I remember hitchhiking home to uh, go go back to college, and that really started off, off a more a serious journey in, in, into music. I, at that point, I was just um, you know, I was I was I was just sort of playing around and and playing personally and jamming around with friends and mates and things like that where I could. <clears throat> and um, so that's I got into college and I learned how to read and write music from there really. And um, and then left that college and then again the, Worked with various individuals and bands, and then eventually ended up joining a band called Farm. You know. And how did you end up joining? Oh,
0: that's that? A short version of it. <laughs> My long versions are fine on this podcast. So, how did you did you yeah. join the? Was it through friends of friends, or was it a band that you'd heard about and that you eventually came to being? Because I've had guests in this podcast who have you know gone to see bands and ended up in bands, or they've heard about another person and met with them. So, how did how did, how did you end up in the farm?
1: Well, the farm was already in existence. Yeah. You know, they would have been going for about two years before I joined them, and um, and what, what basically happened is, is I, I was a regular at the football um, during the late 70s, early 80s. I'm an Everton fan, and so I used to be going the football. And Peter um, is a Liverpool fan, and and but the way that Everton Liverpool were way back then, I mean, we, there was the rivalry was there, but you know we were also friends with each other, and we, it wasn't as bitter and twisted as what it was today. The audience simply because we had bigger things to worry about in terms of fighting the, the Tory government at the time, because we were all very politicized and 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 of a certain uh, mindset at that particular time. Um, and uh, there was a, a two lads that I knew from the from the football, and they were friends, personal friends that. I associated with and hung around with, with the the Dunn family and the Dunn family are a, a, a good known Evertonians uh, in Liverpool and it was um, Peter Dunn and Billy Dunn um, who um, when Peter said they, they'd lost their guitarist for the guitarist that's left they were looking for someone and they uh, Peter Dunn and oh, Billy Dunn it was recommended me they basically said there's a kid that we know from, from around where we live and he, he's, he he looks the part and he's, he's a great guitarist you know Um I'm not sure they describe me like that, but I can, so I'm sort of trying to embellish it a little bit in that way. But they, so they recommended me. And then I remember um, Peter um, come round and you know, got into contact with me. And um, and him and Steve came round to my house and, and basically said, well, let's all play, you know. So I remember I played, um, I can't remember what I played for them. I just played some tunes for them and um, some things. And I'd listened to some of their records. So I played some of the parts off it. And they went, okay, yeah, well, do want to come to rehearsal? So I went to rehearsal with them and the rest of the band and, and picked up the songs quite quickly. And I think I was gigging with them within a month, you know. And my first gig with them was in a, uh, a venue in, in London called Merlin's Cave, you know. I don't even know if it still exists anymore, but th- that was my first ever gig with the farmer. It was, it was a very, very quick baptism because... I remember they, they were, that was kind of like the mid '80s, and and they were from an independent band. They were in the mm-hmm. Independence charts. everyone knew you do where at that particular time, they've been on the Oxford Road show. John Peel was talking about them all the time, and and Such was a mate, and all of that type of thing. So I kind of joined the fan. that I pick everything up very very quickly, and and then the material, and and also you know try and um, at some point try and bring my own mm-hmm. sort of um, um, sort of. Identity to it, which I eventually ended up doing, you know, um, which is where the band, you know, I uh, suppose you can probably associate my guitar playing on with a farmer, some kind of signature type playing, or that's how it's been kind of describe, described. So that's how that started, really, and and it so it was a it was, a, and I got on with them really, really well straight away because we were all, you know, we were lads in a band who went to football, you know, um, and. Really, if you think about those times in the 80s, there really only was music, football and fashion. And they were, we were all into the same things, really. And we were all very much uh, sort of like-minded people in, in, that, in that sense. You know, we, we have a very, very same political outview, outlook, I suppose. We all had similar tastes in music, um, although some of us are quite different in our tastes as well. And we were all very um, sort of accepting each of each other, so I got on with the boys really, really well. And I, I, I kind of, well, I like to think that they got on with me,
0: you know. <laughs> again, we don't know. <laughs> you we You mentioned the band being independent, and obviously you go on and release a few independent singles. And then you have how how was the build-up into the Spartacus album? Because most people listening will be aware of the Spartacus album. So what? How did the sound evolve? I guess in the period from you joining. To the Spartacus album, and I guess could you feel something happening and a buzz around it, and something building as as you led into that?
1: Well, 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 the, the journey to that. I mean, I'm I'm talking really here when when I kind of joined the farm it was about eighty five, eighty six. Think I joined around about eighty five, eighty six, and um, and then we we were we, you know we were playing around the usual independent circuits in the UK, you know, for a while, and it, and the band had been together for quite some time then, you know, um, and so we we released a couple of independent singles with uh, a record company called Fire Records. Who eventually, stopped uh, releasing records by the band, didn't want to release anymore, and so it could sort of kind of got to the five year point with that band at that point. I think it was five or six years, but it kind of got to that point. And then, um, you know, Ray, you know, Acid House music started really, Acid House music started in the late 80s, and and obviously, um, we were uh, bumming around as a you know, or, or kicking around as a, a, a an independent band and i aware of all this stuff that was actually going on and, and began to, um, you know, absorb it really uh, and get involved in it and to, we, we, we prior to that, we'd gone on tour with the House Mountains on we had a bank called the House Mountains yeah, which is Paul Eaton Yeah. they eventually became the uh, Beautiful South. In, in 87, I think it was, we'd we gone on tour with them, we'd done really well and we were about to get signed for the record label but I remember the record label come to see us playing they didn't like the drummer for some reason <laughs> and, and, uh, and so they, actually, they basically wouldn't sign us because of the drummer. That's what they said, you know. And we um, we were, we were you know, we were trying to get signed by record labels and, uh, continuously, and, and we were just getting rejected all the time, you know, getting rejected after rejected. In them days when you got rejected by a record label, they used to send you a letter, you know, and they'd send you a letter. with, and Some of them could be quite, you know, uh, nasty. Some of them could be quite abusive. Some of them could be quite, you know, it's just not for us. But normally there'd always be some kind of smart ass or smart mommy comment in there, you know. And so we were, you know, we were getting rejected everywhere we went. And and that's primarily because I don't think people understood us as a band. You know, we, we didn't look like any other band round. The only other band round that looked like us was the Happy Mondays. Mm. And so and, and they were the only other band around that we we that looked like us. And so we, we, we kind of got on with them, you know, we, we kind of we were aware of each other. And the first gig that happy Mondays ever did in Liverpool was with the Farm, you know. Um, wow. I think that was in eighty-eight, eighty-seven. And so it was the beginnings of all of that time. And we can realised that we were never going to get, probably get signed by a major record label, and that um, we if we were ever going to do it. We'd have to do it ourselves. So we set off upon this road of, of of trying to work out how to do it ourselves, and through working with friends and different people, and then getting and um, our, our manager involved. Uh, of the time called kevin Sampson, who was instrumental really in in helping us um put together some kind of plan to just begin to release our own records he introduced us to like teddy farley and andy weatherall and, and and boys own the boys own crew from um from london you know um and and so we got to know them and, and they started to work with us on, on our records and and very very quickly we turned we turned it around from um from from having you know very little and no interest to everyone in the, in, in in the country wanting to or you know, a lot of record labels and all that type of thing wanting to kind kind of know us. And so we'd released um, we'd done a version of Stepping Stone, but now our first version of Stepping Stone was very good. You know, when we had a demo of it and we played it Terry Farley and he was like, "No, nah, this is shit." I <laughs> <laughs> said, so, "Like so, we got in the studio with him and we and we worked we worked on a version of Stepping Stone with him and, and released it." Stepping Stone flew. It did really, really well. But we only released it on twelve-inch vinyl. We, only, we never, we never thought of releasing it on seven-inch vinyl or, or even a, a cassette tape or or anything. You know, CD was only just a major at that point. No, it wasn't even popular CD at that point. It, it was cassettes, and we thought like releasing it on seven-inch vinyl was cool. You know, because it was like hey, it was all about the twelve-inch deck because it was all dance music yeah. brave, and rave, <laughs> and you were cool if you released twelve-inch music and stuff. We only released that on 12 inch, and and in an action we got like a midweek chart position of something. It was something like 42, and and I'm talking about the days when you know to get a 42, you'd probably have to sell more than what you sell in the top 10 now. Yeah. Physical products, you know. And we do, we just done this from an office in Wood Street, working with our mates, you know. Um, and I'm working with Pinnacle. That was Pinnacle, their distribution company started. I we were one of their first bands that they worked with, um, you know. And that's so a lot of the. Um, so that's kind of what we did with that, that particular record. But I'll always remember um, Pinnacle coming back to us and various other uh, um, people coming back to us at the time saying, look, radio won't play it because it's too long. You know, it's it's this 12-inch base But you're number 42 in the charts without radio. with just club play and just reputation. And just the fact that all these DJs and the likes of Charlie Chester used to go flying and people like that were behind us and, and we were going up to their nights in London and hanging out with them and that type of thing. And uh, just be kind of because of that, we 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 got this midweek of 40, 42, and then I think it went up to something like 38 mid midweek or something, then it moved by a day up to 38. We're gonna get in the charts here. And or um, well, I think it was a midweek of 30 or something, I can't remember, but I know it was quite high, and we were like, shit, do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> all we'd wanted to do, with, all we wanted to do at that point was get in the indie charts. Yeah. We hadn't even given it a thought to to getting in the top 40. We just wanted to get in the indie charts we wanted to be in the top 10 that was the aim It's getting in the top 10 of the indie charts when the indie charts meant something do you know what i mean they don't fucking mean nowadays do <laughs> you know what i mean when it actually mentioned bands were independent they were like i'm kind of independent but well, 50 of what i'm doing and all the money's coming from sony yeah. we'd never had that you know what i mean so it was like we kind of we sort of kind of um within that that position but <clears throat> So what we did is we, I remember we edited, the editors, <laughs> the editors it? to a 7-inch, to what we thought was a 7-inch, got the data off, sent it off, and then we did we sent off uh, some test pressings quickly to radio, and we started playing it. But for whatever reason, it kind of dropped out, and it dropped back down to 42. So we for that first record, it really shook everyone up, because everyone's like, how the friggin' figure now a bunch of galleys yeah. from Liverpool, <laughs> um, be, getting, be getting like a... You know, we've we've, we've not we've, we've had any promotion. You know, we you know we're working with independent promotion companies and, and press agents, and working with Gary Blackburn and, and various other people at that particular time and Best in Press and and people like that. You know, to to to, to help promote our record and and um, and they were like, you know, they just didn't. know one knew where it came kind of come from. So it was kind of like, how can these do this? You know, um. So not really, was that put us on everyone's radar, and that kind of really started to set the. The stage for what was to follow what was to follow after that was groovy train you know as, as, a, as a tune so but what we actually did with groovy train is i remember uh, kevin this is you know kevin's kind of genius role charlie chester was going away out to ibiza to do one of his flying um uh, two week holiday things in 1990 and it was when the beef wasn't really commercialized it had you know the rave scene and the dance music scene had been going on in ibiza for two years and he said, I want to go to beef. I want to do the, you take the usual DJs, but I want to take some bands this year. Then we took, like, A Man Called Adam. We took The farm. We took, you know, 808 State and various other acts. And so Kevin, in his um, ultimate genius, um, said, look, why don't we get the money off uh, the, the people we were working with in the record label? Because we had some benefactors uh, for the record label. We'll get some money together and of them. And we'll take a film crew out there, and we'll film it. Uh, and Channel 4, he was working for Channel 4 at the time don't know that I'm working with you and what I'll do is I'll try and sell it to them when we come back that was a loose plan you know that was kind of the plan so we went out to Ibiza with cameras with Kevin and his mates of the film crew and he stayed there for two weeks and filmed the whole thing right and um, and it, it, you know uh, a lot of music featured in it but Dreamy Train featured in that in that uh, heavily in that, <laughs> in that and we featured obviously because we were paying for the job <laughs> 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 uh, to be made out in Ibiza now when um i mean it was ahead of two weeks you know uh it, it was everyone's it was absolutely fucking mental if i'm going to be honest with you as, as, a, as a as a two-week event yeah but the way it was edited and the way it was a uh, way it actually ended up looking um it it it, it, it it's an amazing documentary and, and it's it's quite iconic now as a documentary and the documentary is called a short film about Chilling. now when we got back from um i be there you know kevin obviously went into channel four and said look we've got this youth culture program it's called show film about children it's about what's happening on the island of Ibiza right now you know Channel 4 loved it you know the the culture editor at the time and youth culture editor at the time actually loved the actual documentary cut a deal and then with the days of the game when you go into tv and just say I've just made this and they'd look at it and review it and you get some kind of deal and they put it on tv you know and they did that and it just happened to coincide when they they were um airing it with the weekend we were releasing, in, <laughs> in, after we were about to release um, groovy today basically. So we were doing really well as a band, we were touring as a band, at that time we'd actually got an agent at that point, we were out on tour, we were gigging, we were doing interviews everywhere because of the scalpers, don't thing, but then when the groovy Train thing happened, um, we did that with a producer called Mark Saunders, and Terry, and Suggs was involved in this then, because Suggs used to uh, call managers at that point, we got in for sheer loveliness and expertise. And teaching us about how to be um, normal in the in the in the in the rock and roll industry, and we um, from there really that the screening that we were doing well. I remember we got a midweek of, of a game with that again in the thirties. But then when that went out on the Friday night, just before uh, the chart was closing, at the, at the weekend the weekend sales went through the roof because we featured heavily in the documentary. as did all the other bands and as did all the other DJs, but Groovy Chain featured quite heavily in it as well, you know and it just rocketed as a record from there so we went i think we went in at number 28 in the charts and as a consequence of getting in the top 30 we got top of the pop so then when we played top of the pops it rocketed up to tw- 11. then were the days when you went in the chart and you grew up yeah, yeah you yeah, didn't just yeah. go in and then yeah, yeah, yeah. Over two weeks later you were out do you know what i mean you grew. you had to sell records to, to um to 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 grow and we eventually, um, I think that was in the, the charts for something like eleven weeks. Eventually, and we ended, I think the highest place we got with it was uh, was um, was um, number six. And, and, and at this point, we're all doing this from an office in. Uh, I, I, one I, we couldn't really call it an office. It was it was a derelict building in Wood Street, uh, which was an old warehouse. An old, an old warehouse that was they used to store sweets and so it actually stunk of like, you know, it was swizzles and yeah. that type of sweets like just to smell. The building stunk of sugar and sweets, you know. So our office was kind of in there and it was just partitioned off, like these wooden partitions. And that's where we had what we are on record company called Produce Records. And so we was kind of based in there and the uh and we had a was as a band downstairs and all for twenty pounds a month, you know. And um because it was just a derelict building that we were in. And it, and, that, and that's when it really started to go mad. If you want my honest opinion, because the phone never stopped, You know, people ringing up for the AR department. You know, so we pick people in the room, and we pick up the phone, going, "What you want the AR department doing?" That was fun. <laughs> 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 on it, you know, some fucking music. Me, anyone here, music? week? say there, the are there, department. OK, mate, I'll be with you in a minute. <laughs> just called the phone and go, hello, yes, it's um, Wayne here from the A&R the Department. <laughs> it was just like that, you know? It, it was just people in their you know? It was basically that kind of that. Um, Learning as you go type of mm. real independent operation, you know? And, and we've always uh, had that kind of ethos about us, you know, that kind of no-one wants us but we don't get, you know what I mean? Um, Kind of us and we will do it our way, um, which we did. I'm, I'm looking fortunately for as it began to work, and then the record after that was um, was all together now. Now, <clears throat> all together now was kind of a, it came and Steve came in with an idea of the chords, and the chords are based on Pachelbel's Canon in D major, which is a classical piece of music. But back then, it was the it was the backdrop, it was the music that supported the man advert. And so we called it the Sheep Adverts. And he comes in and goes, "Always wanted to do something with these chords." You know, for the for the sheep advert and then we Peter had this loop that you know we really like from a booyard tribe kind of and a loop. And so we just put the two things together and jammed through the whole idea. And Peter then used the sort the lyrics from an old farm song called No Man's Land and put them over that record. And around at the time was we all thinking, this sounds really infectious, do you know what I mean? But we all thought it sounded a bit twin, it needed a bit of toughening up, which is where Suggs Production skills came in, you know. so we ended up producing the record um, in London because we were working at that time in Mayfair Studios doing the first album, which was eventually to be Spartacus, you know. And, um, and so we um, we, um, we we kind of finished the record, and when we finished uh, all together, now we 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 got the plugger down, we got the distribution company down, and we got quite a few people down who would be working with us on um, on the, on the previous records and it was I think it was like October it was, it was right about this time you know it was just before this time when we were playing it to them and we were said so we want to release it at Christmas and I, was, I never forget I'll plug it and and, um, and and distributed oh no you don't want to release it at Christmas you know and we were like why you know and they were you're competing with Cliff and Madonna mm. and we were like well that's who we want to compete with you know that's we don't give a fucking Cliff or Cliff and Madonna <laughs> we, we want to pull our records out you know and 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 that's um, and, and that's, um, that's kind of, we, we built it from there. And I always remember that uh, we, had, at that particular point, the, phone, the phone's non-stopper, people are making us all kinds of offers. Because they realised we weren't signed to a major record label, they realised that we weren't signed to a big indie. Uh, we were just doing it with our mates from Liverpool, from an office in Liverpool, under this guise of a record label called Produce Records. And um, basically, remember we had a guy called Anya McDonald came down from the Disc who basically turned around and said, um, listen to Work Together Now. So this is a number one. This is a Christmas number one. I can get this to Christmas number one for you. You won't get it there without the, the, the machine, without someone like that. And we were like, OK. And he said, but in order for me to do that, you're going to have to leave Produce Records and you're going to have to come sign to Gold Disc. And I'll give you X amount of money to do that. And it was a shitload. It was a lot of money. It was more money than we'd ever knew about and experienced. And in terms of today's deals, it dwarfed. But it was unthinkable for us to do that because we'd been doing this with our friends. we would been doing this with a group of people, like-minded people at the time. We felt emboldened by our situation and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the things that had gone on, and we politely declined is, is, is offer of lots of money and uh, the potential of number one because we thought well we'll have a go at this ourselves because we we've done all right up to now and we're kind of loyal to the people that we've been working with you know it just it was just unthinkable for us to do that at that time it was just not something that we could um, we could do as a group of people because it meant abandoning I suppose everything that we would believe in I suppose and abandon those um, there's a story about this coming out at some point uh, which I'll get to in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> And those, those particular people and, um, and so we, um, we we didn't do that but we released the record and it immediately went into the top 10 I think, I think it charted at 13 or 12, next week it was in it's 6 and then it had a battle with funnily enough, Biff and Madonna for about that 3 weeks going in but everything is going nuts for us, we're gigging the that whole rock and roll thing—it was like being on a, a roller coaster that you really didn't want to be on. You know what I mean? Now like you were really on. Now like you—you you, know—you drunk far too much ale. You know what I mean? And you really didn't want to be on this roller coaster because you were thrown up everywhere. That's kind of what it felt like as a as a as a baptism. You know what I mean? We were not if you're like prepared for what happens when when you. We'd had no preparation. We'd had no training of anyone. We hadn't had any. You know, I, I didn't even know how to do accounts at that point. I didn't even know what a friggin' accountant was in terms of, you know, own personal accounts. You know, but, and we were making um, you know a lot of money at the time as well. But so the next thing we knew that we were, we were we were in position number two in the charts. You know, the the week. But Cliff and Madonna had more money behind their record than we did, and they could buy a, a better sales team than us, and they bought out all of the people. That we would be going to start to work on with, and bought better advertising slots than ours, and just put themselves up uh, the, the 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 places of all of the dailies and all of the you know you know we bet got better they got better playlisted better at radio, <coughs> their sales force teams in in the in the record stores, so you know how they how, how they actually work were better than ours, you know what I mean, and they could cut better deals, you know you do this with this particular record, we're going to give you you know yeah. we're going to give you you know three for two or give me an extra deal and I'll make sure you get this on this person's next record all that type of stuff starts where well, every trick in the book was getting pulled to try and because we were getting number one every trick in the book was being pulled to, to stop us getting there you know and it worked and it worked because we ended up at number four <laughs> and I think it was Madonna ended up at number one and Clifford ended up at number two I can't quite remember who was at number three but Andy McDonald was right, <laughs> that's the story, he said, you won't get number one, It deserves to be number one, but I'll get you at number one, um, and he was right, but you learn these things with hindsight, but still all of these years later, I wouldn't change the, change what we did at all, at that particular stage. So then we finished the album. We had tours planned. We had everything planned, and 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 we then went on to release Spartacus. Now Spartacus did get to number one. Yeah, That had made week at number one. We sold more records in that week than YouTube we sold that year with their latest album or their, their previous album. And if you want, we sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of records of that. And that was a time when we really is just a, a time of utter chaos for me because when you're in that position. And you're in a position of having virtually nothing, really, or very, very little. And you're, you're coming from a, a, a background that is, you know, we we, we we were born with, you know, a lot of money. We were, you know, we were born with a lot of opportunity. And then coming from everything that you have in your life, it has to be earned, and has to be fought for, to all of a sudden, I'm not saying that we didn't earn this, we did, but all of a sudden it's like everyone wants to give you anything. It was really um, quite difficult to deal with, I suppose, yeah. if I'm going to be really honest, you know. So we released that uh, Spartacus and it went to number one. But on the inner sleeve of Spartacus, on the inner sleeve of Spartacus, if, ever, if you ever get the opportunity to read it, um, are all those rejection letters that we, we got for those record companies the year before, the two or three years before, that had rejected us and told us we'd never do anything and that we were shit. <laughs> we put that on the inner sleeve of our number one record and in our way, that was our final way of just going, fuck you, to the industry, <laughs> that's that's the story to uh i'm I'm sure every other member in the band would have a different story to it because we all have a, a slightly different recollection of history but that's um that's it condensed into uh, this interview really and uh, from my from my my memory there's a lot more went on you know. <laughs>
0: Great story. Great to recap. Did you did you even feel pressure then to follow that up instantly? Like by by like you're saying, it's quite difficult because you're on a roller coaster. Did you feel the pressure having to follow that up, or did you take time to actually enjoy it because your follow up follows quite soon?
1: Well, it's it's like anything, you know. You 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 spend all your life writing your first album, don't you? You know what I mean? Or it, yeah. you spend a good, good few years pulling all them songs together, and then you have to go out and tour it and promote it and market it. And when you're dealing with but when you, you when know, your manager's as mad as the band, and you you know, and I love Kevin. But he was wonderful manager, and so at that point, uh, he, he sort of took a, said he wants to take a backseat from the management side of things. He wants to focus more on the production side of things, which he did. And it was just a roller coaster for the next two years. Really, it was just he'd feeted in touch really, and I, I, we didn't really get the opportunity to, to enjoy the moment. Mm. And and then again, it's like I don't know what we'd have done differently. I will tell you what, we certainly try to enjoy the moment, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what we've done differently really, um, to enjoy the moment there. Um, I just remember the time we, we kind of celebrated, we loved it, but we were on the next tour, you know, mm. we were on the next gig and we were on the next uh, promotional event. And so that, <clears throat> kind of as a consequence of that number one album, it didn't stop because yeah. we had to tour the UK, we then had to tour Europe, we then had to go to America, we had to come home, we then had to go back to America to do another tour. And so that type of that sort of treadmill, really, I describe it as a bit of a yeah. treadmill, began for us at that particular stage. So at that stage, we didn't, we didn't, we hadn't really begun to work on tunes. Um, it was only about um, well, we were working on music individually and, and and songs, but we didn't really get the opportunity to stop to do that until we began to record the second album, which was Love Seen, or Colour. But in the meantime, we released a, a single called Mind, which which, which again charted and did really really well, you know.
0: Yeah. And then I've got here another cover of Don't You Want Me.
1: Yeah, well, that was, um, you know, we get a bit of stick for Don't You Want Me, really, for um, for doing that. Uh, and a lot of people, some people love it and some people don't. But we were asked to do that by the NME uh, at the time as a, a, a record that was going to be included in a charity thing uh, that they were doing. And so we recorded it and let them, and then included it in this charity thing that we were doing. And we spent a lot of money. Our own money wasn't We, I don't think a lot of people understood this about the band. It wasn't. It wasn't. You know, we weren't spending record label money. We weren't spending. You know, we didn't have endless budgets. We just had what we were earning as as a band from the records and and from from stuff. And we had a lot of people that were on our payroll. I think at one point we were. You think we were employing twenty three people? You know what I mean? And so. And so we, we kind of paid for it itself, and then Kevin said, look, it'd be a good idea to release this. The anime have done what they needed to do with it, and they'd actually released their album, done their thing. And we went on, we, we, we enjoyed it that much. We thought, well, okay, we're going to, we release. Don't You Want Me. Again, Don't You Want Me did really, really well and was a hit. But they slaughtered us for it, you know, they didn't like the fact that we'd done it. Um, in some way, I think they betrayed us, you know, um, they betrayed, they, they thought we betrayed whatever it was. They... Uh, the intention of the record which really really wasn't true it was just um, we thought it was a great record and you'd used it and you put out we'd actually pay for it not you mate do you know what i mean so we thought we'll actually release it you know um which we did and it it, it did quite well you know
0: and then from the second album and then you released your third album in 1994
1: hullabaloo yeah hullabaloo yeah it was a bit of a bit of a a bit of a change you know the second album is uh, a No Color, which did all right didn't do as well as the first I think we've we've loved we don't got a bit mad by them. Now, love Seen colour is that you know it's a representation. It's some great songs on there, some great stuff on there. But really, things have begun to change for us and begun to change from the for, for the industry's perspective. But we've also all gone a bit bit um, off the rails at that point. We kind of fallen out with the people. I remember I said I was coming to a story later on. We kind of not fallen out, but we, you know, this industry changes you and it changes people around you and it changes how you going to work and we kind of um weren't seeing eye to eye with the people we'd set the record label or we were working with on the record label we really weren't seeing eye to eye you know they were signing people without discussing anything with us they were doing you know releasing um, tracks on their own without even discussing anything with us so it sort of we started to really grow apart at that particular stage with there uh, with those those people and then um, and I think it was Seymour Stein went to Kevin Sampson and, and said, Seymour um, Stein from Warner Brothers. So like I'll offer you a million pounds from the farm, you know. But again, we, we declined it. Um, he declined it. He said, I'm not even going to go speak to the boys about it. So we'd been offered a million pounds to leave that, that particular record label. Um, and we declined it again. It was declined again, you know. Uh, but then we got to the point where we were really falling out with each other and then uh, Sony Music come along. And, and we didn't feel that there was a lot of friction between us and the label uh, that we created, we'd helped create. Which I won't go into too much, but you know, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of sort of friction and disagreement on which way we were, we were going to be headed as a group. And so we kind of fell out, you know. Um, so then we decided to, uh, we'd go our separate ways. And so we then signed to Sony Music and the, the people that I was that were running record label got paid off. A good chunk of money, and then we got a ridiculous amount of money as well. Um, and went to sign to, to Sony Music, you know, So but it wasn't as much as what we'd been offered <laughs> previously. It, it'd been significantly reduced. <laughs> so we reduced, we, we reduced the bigger offer uh, out of loyalty to, uh, to to fall out with people. And I won't even go to the reasons why, because it's, it's irrelevant all these years later. It's fall out with people. And we now get on with, we all now, you know, yeah. I see these people, you know, we see these people, and we all get on, it's all water under the bridge, uh, to accept something less, you know. But what we, what we were interested in at that point was make sure the record was released and released properly. But we would never really experienced working with a major record label at that point. And I think we fucked the relationship within the first month. Oh really? With right. Oh yeah, yeah. We, I, don't, I don't think the relationship went went up went very, very well. But they the of, well, they made the mistake. Well, they make a mistake? They invited us to the Sony conference as their new sign, along with other bands in Brighton, and we were very, very um, Okay, so if we have anyone at that particular time telling us no. Me and some of my behaviour, I suppose, I look back at it now and I am possibly ashamed of, you know. Especially when you think about what we were our, our politics were. I think about it a lot. Some of our I suppose as a group kind of behaviour, we become quite hedonistic, you know, we're kind of because you just everything's thrown at you and you're just in this whirlwind of madness, you know. And, uh, and Pete Wiley, I remember speaking to Pete Wiley once, and I remember him saying to you, "Look, what's about to happen to you?" When we were about to have our number one album, I remember him and saying to "No one can ever pay for it. I can tell you what's about to happen to you, Keith." He said to me, and "Peter, but I can't ever really prepare for it. it doesn't matter how many times I say, you're gonna have to try and deal with this yourself." And I was just, I remember at the time thinking, "Oh, it's fucking shit." Do you know what I mean? But it was years later. I knew what he was talking about, you know, because it just get very, very frightening. and it gets very scary. And, you know when you're on, a, you're on a tour bus in the middle of America and anything cold, you know what I mean. You got, to, you know, there's more. You know, people are throwing all kinds of substances at you, all kinds of drink. Everyone, no one is. You got, there's no one telling you no, you know. And if you're not really at the right frame of mind to think, I maybe I shouldn't do this. You know, you can you can go off the rails. So I think we did, and I know that I did myself. You know, and, and uh, you know, uh, I probably spent far too much time drinking and and uh, enjoying myself than I possibly did. Um, working, you know. Um, so we kind of, they've invited us to the Sony conference, really. Uh, um, I remember we just got off. We just got off our cake there. We were like completely, roughly out of our mind. We all this money that they'd given us because we'd never had a lot of money up until then. So we kind of indul- indulged in a bit. And I just remember um, Pete Wiley, who was a good, dear friend of ours at the time, had broken his back um, by falling down. You know you way know you have in the roads where you've got like you know, like, sort of fences, and you got, like, cellars and, the yeah. and things. Well, he had been chatting to someone, and he early on the morning, and went for it, and went back, but the gate opened. <laughs> oh, and, no back, and he fell back, and he broke his back. He broke his back. And then um, he tells a great story about it, where they had to, they had to lift him out by the fire, fire they had to ring, ring, ring the fire engines. He had to bring the fire firemen. Uh, to get him out uh, because he was in such a terrible position. I think it was like a 12 foot, 13 foot drop, you know. Wow. And um, so he's lying there at the bottom of this um, santa type thing out of his house in Liverpool. And uh, we were broken back. And the fireman looks down to him and said, Do you know where you are, is? And he replies with, I-, I know who I am, but what's more important is, Do you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking P. Wiley with his broken back, you know, with the bottom of the santa in Liverpool. <laughs> You know, and so it's kind of we were at the um Conference and his manager's there called Golly, and he used to remember the level man, managed level forty two. And um and we were pissed, you know, and we were at the jail after. And I remember um, what was it? It was um it was uh, <laughs> he goes, um, what was it? Pete I remember Roy, I think it was sitting around and I said, I haven't even bothered to go and see an artist. He was lying in the hospital and lipping with a fucking broken black plaster for me today. You haven't been bothered to go and see him. How come you haven't done that? And it just abruptly out the blue, he starts coming out with this because Jolly and like you know, he's been quite, you know, I don't know what he was going on. And he said, Well he hasn't faxed me. <laughs> something like that. And then something else was said, and then one you know, I just saw someone else, headbutt someone else. Oh wow. Right. And then it went off in this club, you know, with friends of his and bands, other bands, other bands who were associators and you know, it was just a bit of a a bit of a free-for-all you know <laughs> kind of happened well at that point i left and went to bed you know and got up the next morning and heard all of this other stuff that kind of gone on you know and so it, it kind of soured the whole thing i remember from bread rolls at jimmy tarbuck and everything you know and we got a little bit out of order you know what i mean in, in the place it was i remember having a drink with shaking stevens you know i think you know uh, got him that drunk he actually kind of fell over at the bar and had to be carried out the place you know? and Sheik and Stevens is as hard as nails i ain't messing with you, That's you well, yeah, to well, Stevens? Yeah, yeah you yeah. don't mess with him lad. So, hey, you're not gonna mess with shaky Stevens, lad. <laughs> 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 and um, and uh, yeah and we, you know so it's just been a really hedonistic even and i'm not saying that the music industry isn't used to that but i just think with some things that happen at that event that quite shocked them you know and so the, the relationship was a little bit tainted from then on in, you know. Yeah. And I don't think we ever really got on with them. And there's some really nice, nice people that worked there and they really desperately tried to do, um, you know, great things to get us to to, um, to work, you know, in the right way. But I just don't think we were accustomed to uh, uh, working with uh, big major record labels at that particular point. We didn't really, and we'd spent so much time just doing all this stuff ourselves. It so was it kind of alien, you know. And we were at loggerheads a lot with, with, with the label because they had ideas of, you know, uh have the, what they wanted to do the music and the records and we weren't used to you know we were we weren't used to having people come back to us and reject the mix of something I I want that mix I want this mix <laughs> and we don't want any, I don't are we going to spend 70 grand on a video we're like we don't even spend five thousand pounds on a video. Oh, you would fucking hours watching the video. <laughs> and, and and then these, you know, these types of decisions were being made. And it, it culminated in a version of Love Seen on no where we got a video made and we were all in London. I remember getting a done on Christmas. They Getting this video made in Christmas. We had to travel all the way from Newcastle right at the end of a tour to go to London to make this video where we were all dressed up as like sort of priests and and and, and there was kids flying around on fucking wires you know dressed up as little angels and i remember see if you see there's a picture of the farm back in and we just look the most uncomfortable people i remember just looking around and thinking this is this is not what we should be doing this is fucking awful do you know what i mean and the song itself loves you know cool it's a fantastic song it's a fantastic song in the meaning of the song it was long and it was all you know there was fake snow there was massive casts there was kids on from bits of wire flying past your heads, and there were choirs and, and all this type of thing. I and mean, we am sitting there thinking, none of this has got anything to do with the song, you know? And I know everyone in the in the band kind of felt the same way. None of this has got anything to do with what this song's about, you know what I mean? Which is, um, you, know, you know, it's an anti-racist song, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? I and mean, how, how can you t- kind of turn it into this, you know? as all our music has always been quite heavily politicised and vociferous because of the nature of Peter's lyrics, you know, and the ideology of their band. So we were, you know, we were, so I don't think after the, the Love scene Colour album, which did okay, it didn't do too well. Um, and the singles, some of the singles off it did better. Um, I, I think that the relationship was, was, was doomed to end, you know, with Sony. Mm. And, and I'm not knocking the people there, they were only doing what, you know, they, they felt was, was kind of right, you know, and, and the right thing to do, but... It was just circumstances really weren't right for either of us, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: That's kind of how I rationalise it now, all these 30 years later,
0: you know. No, you rationalised it very well. And before we started recording the podcast, we spoke a lot about football. And I'm going to have to bring up football and your kind of relationship with the band and football. Because you've done quite a lot of football yeah. songs, been involved in football a lot. So in '95, ever to get to the FA Cup final, which I guess could be conceived as a miracle in itself back at that point so for for some members of the band like yourself it's probably a dream to be involved with that but if, I guess for other members of the band not so much
1: yeah I mean Peter still gets a lot of stick about that now because Peter's a liberal fan I'm an Everton fan yeah. but football never ever came between us as, as a band and we never really discuss it with each other we don't discuss football with each other because because of that rivalry you know and because we it, it wasn't the reason football was never the reason we were in the band we were in a band for different reasons we were in a band because of we're up uh, political beliefs we did a band because they gave, pe- 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 gave people a voice and because of our love for music and passion for music and a passion for art and what, it, it, what it's supposed to mean uh, you, you, you you derive meaning from bands and so we were deriving meaning I suppose by being in a band so football is part of that makeup, but it's not in its in, in, in entirety now how that came about was that uh, Everton Football Club approached our management so they could use use together Now um, and they want to change the words and um, for, for the um, FA Cup song. Now, um, in order to be able to change the words, you've got to permission of the songwriter uh, and the songwriters, which is Steve, Steve and Peter. Uh, Peter was a bit, I mean, I was like, Stacy, what are you going to do? Do <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, um, and so did Steve at the time, as I remember. And the kids did as well. The kids were really, really you know, everyone's kids were like, oh, it will be a big, great thing to do, you know. But I remember Peter going to his dad and he spoke to his dad about it and said, look, you know, what should to do? Because he was a bit torn because he's a Liverpool fan, you know. Yeah, and it also, fun. also, it, the song means a, a lot. You know, to actually come and change the lyrics of someone's song and get permission of the songwriter, it's not an easy feat. Most songwriters will just tell you no, especially for such an iconic piece of music. Yeah. Well, his dad turned around and said, look, you know, you've got to think about what the song's about. And the song is about, you know, unity and humanity. It's an anti-war song. It's about people coming together. It's not about tribalistic rivalries. It's not about even um, sort of um, compounding that or reinforcing that. It's about unity and it's an anti-war song. It's about peace. And so if you don't, you, you, you're possibly a hypocrite, you know. And his dad's a Liverpool, lifelong Liverpool fan. Right. So that's what Dad sold him, and he felt the same way, I believe, so he could get the permission to, for the lyrics to be changed. So without Peter, and without his dad, and without Steve, um, it would never have ever happened, you know. I mean, a guy that Joe Ainsworth, who is um, <clears throat> an Evan fan who, who then went on to write, write the lyrics for it, and it was recorded in Par Street Studios, and um, the music was uh, recreated, I think, in London. Well, I was down there at the recording of the of the record, and I remember the team being in there, in the studio, and um, with Joe Royal in the studio as well, trying to sing it. And it was fucking awful, you know. <laughs> it was re- it was really really bad. Like I'm not saying it's it, it's any the job that eventually got done was any better, but I remember standing there thinking, "These can't sing, you know. These really, really, they can play football, yeah. but they can't sing." You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and they had I the, remember the producer had different people trying different people on the lead vocal, but I had a at that point. I said, yeah, give us the lyrics, I'll do it, you know, and he said, are you sure? I said, yeah, so I went in with a uh, a couple of bottles of ale in my hand and the lyrics, and I just sang it, and I I sang it and did it in two takes, so I was two take mulling at the time, (laughs) (laughs) and basically, yeah, so um, I I, I, I sang that that, that song, and um, it went, to I can't remember what your position it got, but it charted, did really, really well, and we got to Wembley and we won.
0: Yeah. Must have been a good look must have yeah. been a good And good I got to so. see
1: that. I just got to see his, yeah, I got to see his beat Manchester United remedy I'd wanted to do that since nineteen eighty five. Fantastic, <laughs> <And maybe> so.
0: <laughs> Fantastic yeah. stuff. So you have that and then I guess up until two thousand and four did you call it a day after that or did you just go on and do kind of other other things?
1: Well we did we began to do different things yeah. and I think I think the whole thing had started to take um take it out of us mentally, you know. Um we then um, signed to after signing to start leaving Sony, we signed to uh, we signed to Warner Brothers. Seymour Stein came back and said he really believed in the band and wanted to do something more with us. So we did that, and then we did the album Hullabaloo with with Warner Brothers and him, and, and that was a better relationship. The Warner reprise, we got on really well with them, and they seemed to understand us better. I mean, because they'd signed like some really you know talking heads and. So with the Stable, we were with some amazing bands, you know, and, and I think that we used to work and we just kind of settled down a bit more at that point as in our heads and mentally we weren't as knackers um, really as, as what we've been, you know, in the previous previous years, and which, you know, can be quite damaging to you, your relationships, your family and the people around you, you know, and so we kind of be that and we kind of settled down and we wanted to make something which is a, a different album and something different, which is a different piece of music. Which was um, because when we'd signed directly to America, we have not signed to Warner's directly in a, in, a, in the UK, which became a problem later on because because we were then seen as an American band, and what they, UK, Warner Company, who didn't really want to release the album, you know, because uh, it wasn't them, you know, and that's how and you we're know, looking back then, that's how petty things used to be in record labels, you know, it was pathetic, you know, but. We, we then went and toured America and we blew that album. And we did really quite we well with that album in the states. We did okay in the UK, didn't do as well as perhaps what it, it could have done. But I think I think at that point it was like 1995, 96, something like that. And the, I think the boat had sort of sailed. For us at that particular point, we kind of lost interest. People had drifted off, and it was after the, the um, we done a, a we went. We did a tour of America, another tour of America. We done the Hullabaloo album, kind of. Um, Started doing our own individual things, and just people just drifted off and started doing their own things, and and went on. You know, right? we got to that point where we just thought, I think we burnt ourselves out. We just went on. Yeah.
0: Needed that time off. Needed that time Good. to step away from it and, and take stock of what of what life's about. But then, you know,
1: Plus, I-, I think people have got bored of us. You know, <laughs> you know, I I, I I think we were we were not necessarily one of them bands that really wanted to stay around forever. You know, we were. We, we were gonna bring i suppose and and, and bring Loudon put but yes. sure, you know in the terms <laughs> of careers you know but the beauty of of, of that is and it, once you've been through all of that and that's what you become known for i'm known as Keith in the farm mm. from the farm maybe not, that's you know it's kind of difficult to redefine yourself you spend you spend a lot of time doing these things mm. and 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 and, and um, kind of pursuing it um, and pursuing that kind of artistic recognition and sometimes you not as recognition I suppose you yeah, have recognition for what you're doing and, and all you want to do is create music and make music and and do things that you love and, and then all of a sudden it becomes something that you're possibly not that comfortable with you know and all of a sudden it comes about you know, to, you, know um, you know making all kinds of albums and you find that some sort of the things that you're doing it under normal circumstances you'd never normally do you know if you weren't in that position and situation so I think a lot of that started to dawn on everyone and everyone kind of went their separate ways um, at that, that particular stage, you know, and redefining yourself is really difficult. It's really hard because people only know you for being in, people know you for being in a band, for, so for them to be able to see you as, as something else, or someone else, or think that you're capable of, of something completely different over than, you know, playing a guitar in a band and sometimes being a dickhead doing it, you know what I mean? <laughs> It, it's kind of difficult to reinvent yourself if you're like, oh, oh re, no, I wouldn't say reinvent yourself, really come back to who you really are. Mm. Fine, you know, find, you know, you sort of re-acquaint re, so yourself with yourself, with your, with your true self. So I um, I, think we all struggle with that, and we all struggle to try and forge new careers. But everyone on the farm did that. Everyone of the band now has forged a brand, a whole new kind of career as a consequence of being in the farm. And, 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 you know... Roy is a, and, and, and has his own film production company and is a known um, filmmaker. So is Carl. He's a documentary maker. He also works at Edge Hill University as, a, as the film course. Peter is a book writer, author. He's a, a performer. He's forged his own career since he's, uh, as well as The Farm. And Steve's the same, getting involved in tipping the dance music. And I'm I'm, a, I'm an academic. <laughs> In that I, I work for a university and I've, i um, I went and got a master's degree and various HET degrees. I, I kind of fell into that. It's not something I pursued. And I get involved in lots of different types of music projects and, and, and things that uh, are of interest to in me, you know, and things that I, I, I like doing. And, and, and that's kind of, um, how that went, you know, but it took a little bit of time to do that. So, and then after about 10 years, um, in, from 1995 to 2004, five, we got off by a guy called Calf, uh, who um, who was just uh, helped reform the Happy Mondays. Would we be interested in reforming the farm? You know, to start playing again. And um, I, I, me and Peter, we started doing some DJ gigs in London and at, at, at a club night in at a club in, in in London. Not that we were DJs. I just remember getting off at this gig and I said to Peter, "Do you want to come and do some DJ?" He said. But we can't DJ, Keith, I don't know, but I fucking I can't believe it's just playing records isn't it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So when we went into, I was working at Liberty Design, we went to Libra, got the jacks out, and we, I got one of the DJs to come and show me how to how to do it. And we started DJing the next day. About three days later, we had our first official gig as DJs. Do you know what I mean? And it was a great thing, great, wonderful experience. I was like, "These get money for this. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it was uh, it was a, it was wonderful and great thing that we we began that and as a consequence of that that was by the same people who went on to run get loaded in the park which was in Clapham Junction in London and then those events began in the uh, early nineties you know 2004 2005 2006 and I think sometimes they still do them today you know mm. but the first gig that we ever uh, first few gigs that we ever did getting back together was with um, in, the Happy Mondays in uh, Brixton Academy. And we hadn't played for ten years and we're here for two or three weeks and then went and did two sellout shows at Brixton Academy to six thousand people a night, you know, with the happy Mondays. And and that really then was the resurgence of the farm, really, in terms of we still play gigs now I and mean, then yeah. we've got a load of gigs did next year. We still put we put music out when it has and when we want. And we do interesting shit, you know, um, things that we want to do. Mm. And one of the things that we kind of found through that was that getting back together kind of thing was we'd found after the 10-year break that we kind of missed the van, you know? Yeah. Kind of missed, you know, being in the van with each other and going to a gig and playing a gig and having a few drinks and enjoying yourself without the pressure of having to think, you've got to release a record, you've got to do this interview, you've got to do that. Kind of re- we found the reasons that we, we did it in the first place because we, we're, we're not doing, you know, we gig now, but we don't do it money because... We're not getting paid you know we're not getting like paid lots of money to do gigs you know we we get decent money you know and then we get a little bit of money to the gigs but we don't get we're not getting paid a lot of money we, we kind of do it you know as it's as, as um because we still love it and we kind of missed each other you know in, in, in a way you know we're, we're probably one of the only very very few bands that are out there that still can get on with each other and get on and don't hate each other you know we, we kind of missed each other we needed that break yeah. and and we can tolerate each other uh, for, for doing a couple of gigs in the van because we kind of done all that falling out years ago, you know.
0: That's wonderful to hear. It's wonderful to hear. I'll,
1: um, I'll talk forever if you let me in. Or...
0: <laughs> no, mate, I, we could literally have about a five-hour podcast, but I think, I think every podcast has kind of its limits. So... Keith, let me up, talk to you about music again. And what what kind of music are you into? What what does it for you? Is there a, a certain genre that you listen to, or can you listen to anything? Will you listen to anything?
1: You know, I, I listen to all kinds of different types of music. You know, I'm listening to bands and music every day because I'm I'm fortunate enough to work in a in a in a, in a music department and a in performing arts um, in university. You know, and a, a well-renowned performing arts in, uh, university. So I'm I, I'm listening to new music every day of my life and I, I, i'm really grateful. I, I, I love it i'm really grateful for that so i listen to anything in everything from classical music to punk to reggae to hip-hop to whatever you know
0: is there anything at the moment that you're listening to is there anything at the moment that's doing it for you sorry is there anything at the moment that you're listening to
1: i like listening to um sleep of mud you know i really i really like them as a band even though they're old men <laughs> they yeah. won't mind me saying that because you know what they're great lads and 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 i really love what they've done you know with the with the music and i really love the attitude because it reminds me so much of of, of um independent music in yeah. the uh i really when independent music was independent of that thing of you know anything goes in and, and this is just as valuable and, and and as a piece of art you know than, than anything else you know
0: So let me take you back then, Keith. Let me take you back to when you was a a young lad or growing lad. Do you remember buying your first record or getting given your first record and what that was?
1: I think one of my first records was uh, that I bought um, was Gary Gilmore's Eyes, the adverts, I think. Either that or Eddie and the Hot Rods, do anything you want to do. I mean, they're the first kind of records I remember buying on. And I I got, you know, big into reggae and ska music in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, you know, late 70s there. When, I mean, buying records back then, you know, was was a luxury. Mm. You know, what people don't realise is, you know, well, I value in music. It is very different to this generation, Mm. value music. In order for me to listen to music, you have to listen to the radio, but in order to own it and possess it, I had to go to work all week and sometimes I'd have to go to work in the rain and I'd be laboring on a hod carrier. Sorry, I'd be laboring on, I'd be a hod carrier laboring on a bricklayer. I'd be running up and down a fucking ladder all day in the rain, giving this bricklayer cement, right, to only fucking flick it back at me to say, this is shit, do it again, mm. in order to earn money so I could go to a record shop at the weekend. I'd have to get out of bed to, to, to own music and go out the outs and walk walk to the record shop and pay, have a look at what money you've got. I have to give me mummy a bit, do you know what I mean? Give me mummy a key, like, you know what I mean? And I'd look, okay, that's what I need to get to work on that. I've got this bit that's for me, do you know what I mean? And so I like, not spend this on the leisure projects that I need. And so then I'd walk into the record shop and I'd, not, I'd always go to the counter and say, what imports you got in? Because I was big into reggae and, and mm. uh, you know, imports. Then we're like, you know, uh, I was meaning, what, you know, what have you got uh, from, that's from Jamaica, you know what I mean? What have got from, you know a uh, uh, reggae tune, you know, and I, I'd be listening to culture, I'd be listening to all kinds of different bands that I'd be getting played. And then I'd go into the booth and listen to them and come back and I'd want five of them, but I'd only have enough for three. So I'd have to make the real difficult choice of which ones i not going to get this week. I'd say, can you save that for me for next week? Because I'm coming back for it. You know, and go home and sniff the bag and the vinyl, all that experience of possessing it, and go home and put it on record player and, and sit there and play it to death, you know? So it, that that that's what my I got very fond memories of that experience, that buying and owning experience, and and so some of my early records are all, you know, from that, you know, uh, that, that that kind of punk uh, reggae sort of new new wave um, um, kind of scene, the Clash, you know, tunes like that around the time, you know. And this to do the gigs I was going to, you know, going to see them, going to see the jam in of you know, being blown away by, it, you know.
0: I think the jam gets spoken about quite a lot. I remember Ian Prowse on the podcast, I think episode fifty, said his him seeing the jam in his first gig with his mate was like a life changing moment yeah. where the flick switch the switch flicks. So what about festivals, Keith? This is this podcast is all about creating your own fantasy festival. Are you a fan of the festival? I imagine you've played more than your fair share of festivals, but are you a fan of them?
1: I am, I am, but I'm a fan. not a fan of them from the the, the luxury of a dressing room, you know. I'm <laughs> backstage, you know, and I'm a few drinks, you know. I'm I'm not necessarily a fan anymore of keeping in a tent, you know yeah. what I mean? Or, or, trying to bunk in over the fence, you know, <laughs> which is what we used to do. <laughs> but, um, I'm not necessarily that. I, yeah, I think the great events, but you know, there are lots of different types of event, uh, 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 festivals these days. they become a very different beast, aren't they? Mm. A lot more commercialized these days. I mean, you've got cash machines on festivals these days. So you never used to have a fucking cash machine on a, on a festival <laughs> years ago. You know, it was more it was about going there, getting off your cake, and watching a few bands, but that uh, you would enjoy. But the whole festival experience is not necessarily always about the music these days. You know, even though the music is a central part of it. So. I am a fan of them, you know, I, I mean, Christ, we make, we make, you know, a good living from, you know, from festivals, you know, so I, I, I can't be, in. You know, I think that it, the whole thing's just changed, the music industry's changed, it's changed for the better in a lot of ways and not so much you know, in other ways, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned seeing the jam earlier, are there any other gigs that you've been to that you look back on now and you go, blimey, that was amazing, I can't believe I was there.
1: Yeah, I, no one's going to believe this, no one's going to believe this. I remember I mentioned it earlier on that my family went into music and musicians and stuff like that. Well, my uncle, Uncle Arthur, Arthur Mullen, he was a, um, a big jazz fan, huge jazz fan. And this gig has always stood in me. And I can't remember much of what happened at it. But when I was five, he took me to see Duke Ellington in the uh, wow. Southport Theatre. Right. When I was five years of age, I got to see Duke Ellington. And apparently I was well behaved and nodded all the way through the gig. So. <laughs> That's that's another one. I got to see Bob Marley as well in Deeside Leisure Centre, wow. you know, in in in, this, in, this, in the in the seventies um, when I was a kid. You know, <laughs> I used to you know I used to jump in, the, in in buses and then bunk off schools and go and see these things, you know. But yeah, Hugh Carrington really was another one that really I, I remember the orchestra and being mesmerised by it. But I was five years of age at the time, you know, so it's a kind of um, it stuck with me. And I remember keeping the. um, the uh, program for me for years, and then I think around that period of mayhem lifestyle, and all I lost it all, <laughs> <laughs> which was devastating about because I kept this this thing as as for for the rest of the life, but I lost it. But yeah, I got to see Jim Collinsman. Awesome. When I was five. That
0: sounds amazing. Yeah. That sounds amazing. So like I said at the top of the podcast, the Fantastic was all about getting Keith to collate his fantasy festival. So Keith gets to choose any five acts, one who must play one of their studio albums in full. And to end his fantasy festival, Kid gets to pick an encore which all of his five acts can perform at the end of his fantasy festival, which all can be any song by any artist ever. So it's very simple. Five acts take five time slots. So I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I had singer-songwriter Dale on from Glasgow. He collated his tea in the World Park Fantasy Festival in the last episode. He held his at the Tenants Brewery in Glasgow, which was great. In his opening act he had uh, a band called chion a japanese uh, female band who were excellent actually so that was a great pick in his super seconds act he had the strokes in his midway madness act he had dolly parton in his pre-headline act he had talking heads playing their stop making sense album and his headline act which maybe not a necessarily obvious choice he had lady gaga so all five of his acts were first-time acts mentioned on this podcast. That was a great podcast. And for his encore, he went with a track called Hey Man, Now You're Really Living by the Eels that all of his five acts played. So that was a great podcast, a great fantasy festival lineup. So it's as simple as that. Five acts, five time slots. It's very easy. So, Keith, before we talk about your acts, I always like to get uh, a name and a venue for your fantasy festival. So what, what, are, you going, what, what are you going to call your fantasy festival?
1: Uh, my, 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 the venue is Stanley Park, Liverpool, which is North Liverpool, which is only used as a park and never used. It's, it's um, the, the opposition to sort of Seven um, Sefton Park, which is in South Liverpool, which is in North Liverpool, and it's not gentrified in any way. It's not a gentrified park, It's it, it, but it's an amazing park, and it's a park that sits between Everton Football Ground and Liverpool Football Ground, but it's a huge. There's a huge space there and I've seen gigs on there and so that would be the uh, venue for me, you know.
0: Great. And, w- and what would you call your fantasy festival, Keith? What are we going to call it?
1: Uh, well, uh, the name really is a is, is, uh, title of the song, really. Um, and it, it's kind of synonymous, really, with all of the acts that are on it and it's called One Love.
0: Brilliant. I love it. So we've got One Love, taking place at Stanley Park. And before we talk about your five acts then, Keith, are there any acts that you want to mention or talk about who are dear to you, who you love, but for one reason or another, just don't quite make it into the fit of One Love?
1: There's probably quite a few, yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, Madness at the moment, you know, they, I really toyed with the idea of them being in there because I think they deserve to be. But I, I was thinking who to a drop, you know, so I was, uh, they would definitely be the other band I would have in here, you know, um, kind of, you know, yeah. <laughs> bands, you know. I, know I would think of. I'm thinking of old bands, here, You know, but you know, maybe even the One Bats and stuff like that as well. You know, you know, I really like them. You know, they're, they're, a, they're a really cool band. You know, um, yeah, but yeah, really my, 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 my 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 first story has got a bit of a nostalgic theme to it, although it's kind of current. But also, there's a theme running through it. You know, really, and and further theme of one love but also there's, there's all of the artistry. in from my perspective, means something. Can, you can derive some kind of meaning beyond the commerciality of music with what they create and what they do. So they're, they're also quite, they represent, I suppose, a supposed voice for, um, um, I suppose, justice and freedom. And, and, um, and in a way, because you could probably say that some of them are quite politicised. Brilliant. You know?
0: All right, well, let's find out who they are then, Keith. So two o'clock, Stanley Park sold out, heave in, One Love sold out. So two o'clock. Time for your opening act, then, Keith. So who who would you have open your fantasy festival? NWA. Great shout! Great shout! So NWA. Yeah.
1: So what? <laughs> they would be they be a punt right in the face of an opening act, an opening band, and everyone think, well, they could probably headline on their own. They could, but that would just that would make sure people are in there at two o'clock, and it would smash the bat out of everything, you know. <laughs> and then everyone that's following it has got a serious job to do. Yeah,
0: they certainly have. So. NWA, they've never been picked for a fantasy festival before, and I guess they've got quite a lot of material to fit into that one-hour slot, but it will be a great hour. Oh, God, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, they've got plenty of material to fit in there, but
0: also, you know, they're very iconic as a band, you know what I mean? Iconic as a band, you know. Yeah, certainly. All right, so NWA, take your opening act. They'll play from two till three. We'll take a half-hour break, and then it'll be time for your super seconds act from half three to half four. So, Keith, okay, who's going to take your super seconds slot?
1: It's Leaford
0: ah, yeah, Mods. Ah, Sleaford's Mods. So you mentioned them yeah. earlier. Have you have you seen them before? I take it in Keith.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, I've seen I've seen them before. I'm going to go see them again in uh, November in Liverpool. So what? Yeah, I like them as a band and, and I think they fit the date with that particular lineup because it's a very very different thing that they're doing, but it's still it's a social commentary Well what's actually mm-hmm. going on there with those two art tracks. It is social commentary. It's a form of social commentary. And it is, um, uh, uh, you know, it's just as relevant from an artistic point of view, you know? And I think that, um, Quite oppositional to everything else that's out there. You know, because they're, they're, they're almost like anti culture, you know, yeah. and as, as as you could argue when NWA was started, all the, all the same things as them, you know.
0: Great stuff. So, Sleaford Mods, they get picked for their first ever fantasy festival. So, we've got another two new yeah. acts so far NWA and Sleaford Mods, uh, the two opening acts. We'll take another half hour break, and at five, it'll be time for your Midway Madness slot. So, Keith, who would you have played in your Midway Madness slot? Marvin Gaye. Ah, fantastic shout. Again, you might not believe this, but first time Marvin Gaye's been picked for Fantasy Festival. So you're the first person to pick Marvin Gaye. I mean, Marvin Gaye, what a voice, right?
1: Well, because we're at a point, we're at a transitional point here. We've had like hard hitting in your face. All of a sudden, we're at a real, very, very very musical, we're going to be taking on a very, very different musical journey here with Marvin Gaye, you know, and he's got such a an amazing body of work, an amazing voice. And again, you know, someone that was questioning, you know, the world that he lived in at the particular time and eventually headed in that direction, you know, and had some things to say. But I also made some fantastic music and some fantastic records, you know so
0: Marvin Gaye yeah great shout Marvin Gaye takes your Midway Madness slot so again three new acts so far maybe we'll have all five new acts I'm so interested to see who the next two are so Marvin Gaye Midway <laughs> Madness we will take half hour break then Keith your pre-headline act will play from half six to eight o'clock so who, who's going to take your pre-headline act slot it
1: would have to
0: be The Clash uh, I can tell you now this isn't The Clash's first dalliance with a fantasy festival so, <laughs> so The Clash this is the, <laughs> sixth, the sixth time they've been picked so I mean, like, yeah. yeah, a very popular choice, and rightly so. So why, why The Clash for you, Keith? I mean, there's such a, again, a massive body of work. Why, why The Clash for you?
1: Um, basically because of what they represent represented, everything they represented. If you think about the acts that have just basically gone before them, they can kind of punctuate what is about, you know, the, the, the final act. But also it's going to get everyone really right back up there, do you know what I mean, in terms of, in terms of energy levels I'm. And I, I just think they will take it take things up actually another level because of the aggression in the music and because of what the politics and because of what mm. they're saying and because of what they represent. You know, it was a performing band that craft were amazing, you know, it was a band, you know, and so yeah, for all of those particular reasons, you know.
0: And is there is <laughs> I know it's quite difficult to try and get all their catalogue into an hour and a half, but are there any songs that you would have to have them play?
1: Tommy Gunn,
0: <laughs> they'd
1: have to play Tommy Gunn, <laughs> and uh, I'm a fan. <laughs> Brilliant. you know, maybe I'm a fan, maybe not, maybe Midnight Midnighton, um, what is it, um, oh god, I don't know, yeah, they'd have to play London Call and they'd have to play Tommy Gunn, you know, they'd have to play, yeah, Gun, you know, to play, um,
0: Yeah, um, but, yeah. loads of stuff to choose from, so The Clash of stuff, make their sixth appearance at a fantasy festival, they are your pre-headline act that One Love, so four acts down, and one act to go. So an amazing first four acts, Keith. But who are you going to have headline one love? Bob Marley. Oh, great shout. <laughs> great shout. So you, Bob Marley. has to be Bob Marley. So Bob Marley has had a few selections before. This is only, though, his second appearance at a fantasy festival. So you're is only it? the second. So I guess you're quite lucky, then. So not many people get to see their headline acts for real. And you said you've seen Bob Marley. So
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm that I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I was 15 at the time but, uh, but yeah I got to see Bob Marley live you know it was a, uh, it was an experience you know it was a real experience you know and um, and um, it was um, it was like, almost spiritual you know in terms of actually w- w- watching Bob Marley and the atmosphere and you know all things that you know I things you know, what were like in those particular days you know and it was a very diverse audience as well you know that were actually yeah. watching him and he had so many, so many accessible records, mm. you know, so many commercially commercially successful singles that were actually, you know, saying something other than fucking singing about shopping. Do you know what <laughs> I mean? A lot of actually say, just singing about going shopping and shit? Do you know what I mean? And whether or not they got the latest watch. He was actually singing about things that actually matter to people in their lives. He was making social commentary, and I think leading up to a, 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 a band, you know, he... It kind of made, you know, it, 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 there is an argument for Marley bringing kind of reggae to the rest of the world, you know, yeah. and, um, and 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 so he was, he's such an iconic figure, you know, and I think, you know, the music was speaks for itself.
0: Great shout, so Bob Marley headlines the One Love Festival, very apt. So he'll play for half eight to eleven, and then at eleven o'clock he'll bring back on stage <coughs> the Clash, Marvin Gaye, Sleaford Mods, and NWA. So what a lineup you've got on your stage, and they all get to play. Any song of your choosing, Keith. So you can have them play anything that you want to play. So, what would you have your Fantasy Festival lineup play to end your Fantasy Festival?
1: Well, Stephen, I'd often play uh, "Police and Thieves" by uh, Junior Maven. Great, great track. Because that's such a beautiful piece of music, and even and it's sim- so simple. Um, it, it has a real kind of statement. It, I, I think all of those artists would probably be comfortable with performing mm. that and playing it. In some in, in some kind of way, because it's such an iconic song, and um, and and it you know it, it again it's it's it, it's kind of relevant. I mean, The Clash used to do a a to police and themselves, you know, as part of their where they're set, and 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 and, they, and they've recorded it as a tune themselves. So it would it would not be in common with all of those um, artists, I, I think. Um, and it'd be interesting to hear how a rap artist would deal with it. From from that perspective. So it'd be interesting to see how NWA would would deal with that. And also, you know, Sleaford Mods, how they would, what type of contribution that they would make. It'd be interesting to see that. that It's a simple song, a simple tune, but it has such a big impact upon it. And it's so. um, Irritatingly catchy,
0: <laughs> yeah, in my head now I can just hear it going round and round like I'm certain you can, and anyone listening to this podcast, can. <laughs> it's got a fantastic
1: bassline in it. As yeah. well, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just some archetypal, but
0: yeah, great choice, great choice. So let's lock your fantasy festival in then. So we've got One Love Festival taking place at Stanley Park. In your opening app, we've got NWA, Super Second, Sleaford Mods, Midway Madness, Marvin Gaye, pre headline actors, The Clash. And your headline actor, Bob Marley, and for your encore, they're all going to come out and perform "Police and Thieves" all together. That's a superb lineup. Are you going to have any of them play an album in full? Is there an album that you want any of your acts to play, or are you just happy to let them play whatever they want?
1: I'd be happy for them to play what they want, but if they were going to play an album, I'd, you know, I'd love to see it. You know, Bob Marley do his uh, Exodus album and them joining him and kind of play because you know, I mean, that album was written when he was sort of kind of fleeing. Uh, you know, um, from it's uh, to the UK. You know, to um, um, because he'd been he'd been an attempt had at been made on his life, and it's yeah. talking about you know the Exodus. Um, uh, it's talking about you know people having to flee and sort to flee their homeland and stuff. So there's there's real meaning behind that. I think people would be comfortable uh, playing some of the songs. you know if you listen to some of the songs in that album, at all, there's so many hits on that on on that particular album and. and um, it's such a again a wonderful piece of music, and uh, that means so much to a lot of people. It was one of probably one of his most commercially successful yeah. albums as well. You know, not that that really has an impact on it, but it just kind of shows how their music at that particular time is uh, was resonating with uh, with with uh, a really diverse audience. You know, globally.
0: Great show. So,
1: Exodus is such a fantastic album. I, and there's some, you know, there's some great music on there. I think it would been really challenging for people, yeah, for the uh, all of those artists to have a go at that, you
0: know. <laughs> Brilliant. I shout. like to
1: challenge people. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> so, what a way to end with the One Love Fantasy Festival. So, a great Fantasy Festival line up there. So, before we wrap up, then, Keith, you're you're quite a busy man. You have got a lot going on. So, what did the next few months look like for you?
1: Um, I'm I'm uh, obviously working in Liverpool at the moment. Uh, I've got some gigs with the Farmer playing Shine On Festival. Yeah which happens in Maynard, which Shine On is a great festival, you know, that's one of the festivals I really enjoy. Um, not that I don't enjoy the others, but I know the people that run the festival really well, and I know how they started it and how they grew it, and, you know, it really is for the love of music, that that particular festival, um, and the, so it's run by good people, like the, the people that, you know, all the people that are in attendance there, you know, just have a great time, you know, um, and so... There's always good bands playing, so we're playing that in, uh, in two weeks' time. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. We're looking forward to it and I am looking enjoy that. And then between now and Christmas, I've got um I'm planning some things next year with uh, with the band. Um with, with Peter and as our manager. We've got some some project ideas that we're working on at the moment for next year. And we've we've also already got a load of festivals booked in for next year, you know. So I'm also working at Lipper, and I'm now the new course leader for the new Masters in Music Industry Professional Management in in Lipper as well. So I'm now a course leader for an MA dig, uh, degree in in in, in Lipper, which you know what? I mean, you asked me thirty years ago would end up doing that, <laughs> and I said it's pretty bad. I mean, but you know, I'm really enjoying doing that at the moment. at this kind of I'm I'm like sixty years of age now. You know what I mean? So you kind of you know. When you when you when you reach 60, you're kinda of in the waiting room, aren't you? You know what I mean? No. <laughs> like, 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 you are, like, you're kind of sit there, and, well, you know, fucking hell. so and, you know, I I I kinda of try and um do things that I find satisfying from mm. an artistic point of view, are uh, interesting. And more importantly, I'm in a fortunate position where I I, I get up at the and I think, yeah, hopefully am I, man. I could have done mm-hmm. so so different, really. So I'm in a fortunate position where I, I you know I've got people that I've got faith in me that will give me a job like that. You know that I, I had to apply for the job and Jeff and that that everyone else you know that you would do for the job like that will, will give me a job that I have the trust in me to do something like that. And that I get I still get to play in a band. Uh, I still get to go and do that type of stuff. I still get to write music. I, I wrote the music for um for um the the documentary uh, Howard's Way as well. You know, so I did that the, the other year. You know, so. I always wanted to write a, a, a film, you know, for like, you know, have a go at writing music for something that was on, on TV, and I got the opportunity to do that with Rob Sloman and Dave, who I go to match with Dave Feely, and uh, they we pulled that project together called Howard's Way. It's about uh, Howard 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 Kendall, and we, we did that, and that's also been on Sky Arts as a documentary. Well, yeah. I did all the music for that you know, as well, like so, so you know there'll probably be a couple more projects like that coming up over the next next year or so, which I'm really looking forward to, you know, so. So yeah, I mean, I, I get up and then I think, you know what? Uh, it, it hasn't been all bad because I I, I get up and I can go and listen to music all day with the kids that I'm working with in university. I get to go and do the things at the farm, and I get to work on different diverse stuff as well. So, so the next year is going to be interesting. I'm really glad that we, would you know, we we can probably get back to playing because yeah. you know, it has been a difficult. A difficult, um, difficult um, time, you know, and especially for, you know, for myself having to go through lockdown by like, doing radio therapy as well. wasn't, wasn't great, yeah. you know, but I'm in a better place now as a consequence of it and thank God for the NHS, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that Shine On Festival is going to be absolutely mental. I think that's yeah. going to be an absolutely, I think you're going to yeah. go down so well at that as well. Many other acts. So, yeah. Keith, I know you're on social media. Let's give you social media uh sites plug. so how do people go and find you on social media and how do they how do they get to find the farm
1: and um, the farm are on twitter as basically the farm underscore you know on the and for me um i'm just on twitter as keith mullen i'm on instagram as keith mullen the farm um, and we have a farm facebook page um, and that's just basically the farm the farm live, I think that is that, that 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 Facebook page goes down as, you know. So we're on all of the all of the usual social media channels. Only thing we're not on really is TikTok I don't think any of us will work. No one wants to see us on TikTok. Really don't want to see us on TikTok and I I, I can't really work TikTok out. It's Same here. it's it's possibly not for me, you know.
0: Same here. No, my nine, my <laughs> nine year old daughter is, is getting more into it and I can't work it out either. And also, if people want to go back and listen to The Farm, you're on all streaming platforms. So, if anyone wants to go yeah. back and listen to Spartacus, Hullabaloo, any other albums that you got, you can do that. Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, every, anywhere that streams, The Farm and there, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, we, we're still now an independent label. We still operate independently. We're not necessarily, you know, even though we use majors to sort of distribute what yeah. we do and we work with them and. Um, on, on that level what we got more of a we we kind of work with these companies now more on our terms, I suppose. And so we're still we're still independent all these years later, you know, doing 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 what we, we do and I'm quite happy for it, you know
0: yeah that's brilliant to hear and long may it continue long long may yeah. it continue so that is it and thanks to everyone for listening to the 72nd episode of the fantastical podcast and if you've enjoyed this when listening for the first time if you're listening on itunes give us a follow give us a subscribe, give us a five-star rating, or if you're listening on Spotify or Anchor, give us a follow and recommend the podcast to all of your families and friends. The Farm and Keefer on Twitter, so is the podcast, so give us a follow at P. And if you're not and want to get in contact with the podcast, you can give us an email at fantasticalpodcast at outlook.com. Uh, unfortunately on podcast we can't play music. It would be great to intersperse some of the acts that Keith has spoken about music, but I'll get some tracks from Keith and we'll put them on to a Spotify playlist. So we'll have a little soundtrack to accompany the podcast and that'll be in the episode description. So scroll down on your device, what you're listening to. There'll be a little link and go and listen to some of the acts. Who we've yeah. spoken about, we'll get that sorted. So, Keith, a massive thank you. It's been an honour to have you on the podcast. You've told some amazing <laughs> stories and a great fantasy festival <laughs> lineup. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've, I've really enjoyed listening to you speak this evening.
1: Yeah, no, Steve, it's been really, really great. Thanks for asking me on, and it was. It's it's been quite different because we got to the, you know, quite a lot of things, but never really done a fantasy festival before, <laughs> like that. and you know, it's been really enjoyable, and um, and and yeah, thank you very much for asking me on. It's it's a, it's an honour. You know what I mean? Like I think you know, uh, I think what you're doing is really interesting. You know, love it.
0: Thank you so much. It means a lot. So I'll be back then with episode number seventy-three. So please make sure to join me. But until then, stay safe, my fantastical friends. Please continue to spread the word, and that word is fantastical. Thanks for listening.